Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So it seems we're inevitably um, waving off our old heroes. And uh, and one of the most recent ones was was the man we called Commander Cody, really. Uh, but he wasn't actually Commander Cody, was he? he no, what, George Frayne was he called? George, George Frayne, Frayne. yes. Right. It became known as... Commander Cody and the, and Lost, the Plan- Lost Planet Airmen. Lost I used Planet to Airmen. love them. Explain, love them. explain them for the benefit of your Well, they listeners. were, a, a, you know, there was a kind of vogue, wasn't there, for kind of country-flavoured rock acts like Poco and the Eagles and Asleep at the Wheel and stuff. And like Dan Hicks and his Dan Hicks and his hot legs, exactly. And, and uh, he, yeah. he carved out a niche that wasn't really like anybody else. It was kind of, it's kind of rockabilly. Western swing and jump blues and jazz and kind of and boogie woogie. He was a boogie, he's a boogie piano player. And also terribly funny. And it's just one of those groups that there is absolutely no equivalent of in this country at all. There's nobody like him. He was kind of inspired by the old Western swing pioneer um, Bob Wills. And they had a wonderful and he got they got the name, didn't they, from um, a series of um, cheap sci-fi um, films in the 1940s, was a sort of Flash Gordon type character called Commander Cody, and the last of these films was called The Lost Planet Airmen. So they thought that'd be a great name for the band. So they started the band, at which point all the audience kind of thought there must be a Commander Cody. They assumed one of them was Commander Cody. So he then had to kind of adopt the personality of Commander Cody and become that person. And, uh, oh, he was just fantastic. I love the album um, uh, Country Casanova. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Where he's wearing a fabulous kind of rhinestone encrusted kind of uh, cowboy shirt and leaning against a gorgeous old car, lent him by Jim Marshall, in fact, he was the photographer. And uh, yeah, all these brilliant people in the band. Jim, uh, Bill Kirchen, beautiful, fantastic guitar player, Buffalo Bruce Barlow. And they did all those old show tunes. Do you remember Honeysuckle, My Honeysuckle, Honey and Me, and uh, My Window Faces the South, and the great masterpiece. Was a song, was an old novelty hit from the 40s called Smoke, Smoke, Smoke That <laughs> Cigarette. Do you remember that? It was just so funny. It was a brilliant idea. But at the time when the most heinous thing you could do as regards smoking was, was to inconvenience 
other non-smokers. Not to threaten their health or your own or anything like that. It's all about poker games and petting parties being ruined. By the fact they all put on hold because somebody has to smoke. Do you remember the chorus of that? Go on. Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Puff, puff, puff. And if you puff yourself to death, tell St. Peter at the Golden Gate that you would hate to make him wait. But you have got to have just one less cigarette. It's so brilliant. <laughs> we used to play that over and over again. Me and my puff. We used to love him. He was so great. So we were talking about smoking, weren't we? Again, in the context of, uh, of the Good Commander and also the Labour Party conference. Oh, yeah, well, we saw that. I think I sent you a picture of Angela Rayner. She was on the cover of The Times. And it, what was shocking to them was not anything that she might have said about the the the, 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 the Tory party or, or Boris Johnson, but the fact she was having a gasper. In a break, she'd gone out and fired up a gasper. And actually, I, I was quite... I was quite amazed because I was thinking, and you were too, when now. was the last time you saw it, it, a well-known person fire up? And that's their, obviously, Nigel Farage, and they're doing it as a piece of kind of image-mongering and self-positioning. But when would you have last seen a, a famous person publicly smoking? It is now, anymore, do you? It is now something that when you glimpse it, in any context other than a load of people huddling outside a pub, yeah. or a cafe or whatever. It is now something that strikes you as contemporary word alert, transgressive. Yes, it <laughs> is. It's, yeah, yeah. Like, it's like you've only done that deliberately to irritate everybody else in society, haven't yeah. you? Because it's now just so rare to see it. You know, I saw somebody do this on an open-air um, London transport tube platform but it was in the open air i saw somebody with a with a kind of a vape you know vaping device whatever and that kind of shocked me and i had to check whether you're allowed to do that on open air platforms london underground and you're not are you not, not really supposed to, no you're not supposed to then anybody who and does do that if you go up and challenge them they're waiting to be challenged because they're the kind well, of people who've got some aggressive old, response prepared, our old yeah. mate tom maloney used to say this years ago when when smoking was first banned on the tubes and you used to get some people who defied it didn't you yeah yeah, yeah. and he said he said anybody who smokes on a tube is looking for a fight yeah that's, do not that's do the not only have reason a word with them they're waiting <laughs> that's the only reason they've done it yeah you know but but it is just it's just amazing and i was i was thinking about you know my my kind of personal history of smoking and yeah we've all done it we've all had our years smoking i was a very devoted smoker for you know me too like 15 years old probably longer than that and um that moment when you left the house and you patted both pockets to make sure you had <sighs> over 20 cigarettes oh yes because one twenty <laughs> was not enough you know? oh, no. that's the that's the thing that strikes you when you think back on it it's not the fact that you did it it's the scale upon which you did it is absolutely remarkable. And the amount of money you spent on it and the things you were prepared to sacrifice for it, it's just absolutely remarkable. And, uh, you know, I remember growing up that you kind of had to have a reason not to smoke. Yeah. You know, my, my mother, who didn't smoke, would have one at Christmas. Because it would be just to be sociable. Just to be sociable. I know. It's like it's like you're you know teetotal anti. My dad made, made himself smoke a pipe because he thought that's what you did. He didn't enjoy it at all. 
but he went out dutifully bought the tobacco spent ages that that whole um, wonderful ceremony of scraping out the bowl of the pipe and tapping down the tobacco I know there's a great cartoon I can remember and there's a brilliant cartoon in the New Yorker which I can remember three frame cartoon about your dependence on cigarettes the first frame is a wife and a husband looking out the window and they're they're going um, they're going god who'd go out in this weather and the next thing, the guy goes, God, we're out of cigarettes. And then the third frame is him kind of, you know, his, his umbrella blown inside out, <laughs> walking through horizontal rain to get to, I don't know, gas station or something to buy some fun. That's how desperate we were. See that, Mark? What am I holding up? Oh, is that your dad's pipe? That's my dad's pipe. No, my, my dad died, you know, we're getting on for 40 years ago. And, and you know, but I kept this pipe. I can smell the tobacco. Oh, lovely. That's absolutely amazing it how is. that lingers. That, Incredible. All that time, you know. But of course, rock stars and smoking. You know, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they just all did it. Compulsory. They it's it, compulsory. it was compulsory because they spent a lot of time hanging around and also kind of looked cool, yeah. didn't it? And I do think the most ridiculous, the wildest shores of cigarette addiction always strikes me whenever I see an old bit of film from the 60s or the 70s where some band are, you know, about to start jamming or rehearsing or whatever. And somebody will start by lighting a cigarette, one of the musicians, taking a drag and then placing it among, among you know, the, the machine heads, yeah, the heads. Yeah. At, the, at the end of the of the guitar, and then proceeding to play while smoke just drifts into their eyes all the way through, just which must be staggeringly irritating. Well, all the great but they just black and white jazz photos of the nineteen fifties were, to, to, were, you know, characterized, weren't they, by 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 smoke and wreaths of smoke around people. There's a bit in Scorsese's movie um, Shine a Light which I think was made in 2006, wasn't it? At the Beacon Theatre, where Keith Richards kind of lights up a fag and then kind of flicks it up a light fag. Of course, at that stage, you weren't allowed to smoke indoors, so this was going to be outrageously rebellious. But actually, you don't see, and there was a famous moment where the, that somebody, an American poster campaign were promoting Abbey Road in 2003, and they erased the cigarette from Paul McCartney's right hand. And he was very upset about it. He said, nobody asked me. This is ridiculous. You can't do that. Fair enough. I wonder if, interesting, I wonder if Peter Jackson has had to do anything about this during Let It Be, during his massive, uh, you know, re-assembly uh, of, of of all that footage. Well, you could some of them spoke. This. Yeah, they well, spoke all the time. Know. I don't think you would, would you? You couldn't. Did they all smoke all the time? Yeah, all four of them. Really? Good yeah, grief. Yeah. That's extraordinary. So who is, you know, David Hockney is the famous, you know, militant smoking holdout of the, of the kind yeah. of art world. Who's the militant smoking holdout of the rock world? I don't know. I don't no, know. There is so one. Keith, you, the, Keith stopped. Keith stopped. Keith stopped. Liam Gallagher stopped. Uh, I think Ronnie. I think. Ronnie stopped. Ronnie Wood stopped. Noel Gallagher stopped. I mean, these people. It was compulsory. Has Joni Mitchell stopped? That Joni Mitchell would be the last bastion. Joni Mitchell <laughs> always kept going, and I was amazed really because somehow she just would it have affected her voice, but she was incredibly uh, um, enthusiastic smoker, wasn't she? And I think I think still is. Well, be but um, 
you just don't see it, you know, generally. It's a, it, it seems to hang on more outside the, the coffee shops near where I live that it hangs on amongst the rock fraternity. Because if you, if you want to whatever, smoke whatever now, you've got to go through such misery, haven't you? Didn't you, didn't you, didn't you once interview Emmy Lou Harris and she had to go outside? Oh, the, well, I'll tell you that? this. I did. I interviewed Emmy Lou Harris. And, the, you know, this is must have been in the, in the current century. Uh, and she was staying at the Langham, very splendid hotel opposite the BBC um, in Brook and Portland Place. Yeah. And saying it's fabulous sweet, which must have cost an A and an L. And, uh, and at the end of the interview, she was going to go downstairs to have a cigarette. And presumably the only place, it didn't matter what kind of rock star, film star, personality you are, if you're staying in a luxury hotel nowadays and you want to have a smoke, you presumably have to go down by the goods entrance and rub shoulders with the washers up and relieve security men (laughs) or whatever. We're all out there huddling, having a cig. And I'm saying if you're a star, that's going to test your devotion to cigarettes. It really is. I would have thought, because they're not used to being with normal Because you can't just lean out on the balcony and have a fag anymore, can you? I don't think you're even allowed to do that. No, 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 no. Anyway, let us know if you've seen any um, of your rock favourites still smoking. We want to know. We want to keep track. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So correspondence from the Mastiff has been flowing in, Mark. I was particularly taken by this from Gareth, all the way from New Zealand. He thinks he's possibly the only uh, former UK magazine fanatic in New Zealand. We happen to know that's not the case, don't we? We've got we some pals out there. we got some pals huge, in New Zealand. But anyway, but anyway he's, he's particularly taken by the fact we were, uh, we were mentioning various things we were mentioning last week, uh, that uh, bands with zany names, uh, members with zany names, and he pointed out the Vernon Dudley Bohay Noel of the Bonzo Dog Band that was actually his real name. It was, it was his real name, actually. You're absolutely right. I think there we were kind of applauding the great man without uh, making that point that he didn't make it up. <laughs> it's a great name. If you're born Vernon Dudley Bohainel, you can only really got one really got one passage in life ahead of you, which is to join the Bonzo Dog Band. <laughs> Just hang about and wait for the Bonzo Dog yeah, Band to, to form. To form. So, but, but I was also taken by Gareth uh, remembers we were talking about it's now safe if you're uh, if you worked in the magazine business, it's now safe to have a go at W. H. Smiths because they're so kind of reduced. And uh, he he points out that when he left London for New Zealand in the mid nineties, he says the W. H. Smith at Waterloo Station was a brightly lit, lit cathedral to the magazine <laughs> with flying buttresses of OK and Hello, curly cues of women's weeklies, deep piles of computer and music and photography of figure and fashion, and, well, everything mainstream and quite a bit that wasn't. It was vast. I forget the exact figures, he says, but for many magazines, that single shop could account for a third of all London sales. It probably could. Yeah, I think it would have done. In some some cases, 20% of all national sales. It it was the only bookstore where I would go and watch the display of the titles I worked on and reasonably expect to see somebody buy a copy. 
I, I've done that. Oh, well, you, you didn't have to. I, I used to do that, hang around waiting by the piles of Q magazine, saying, Seems please, somebody, somebody yeah, help you. put my kids through college. <laughs> no. But anyway, he says that the last time he visited Waterloo Station in 2017, I thought I, thought I might go and pay my respects, perhaps purchase a magazine or two. Carry on, Mark. Carry on. Yeah, he said, uh, uh, he said, it took me some time to locate a W.A. Smith. It was a dark, low-ceilinged little shop stuffed with crisps and carbonated beverages. I thought there would have to be another one somewhere on the concourse, so I walked walk round it twice. Nothing. So I returned to the WHS, and I looked beyond the sweets and sandwiches, and there, in a dingy little corner, was a rack of magazines that would have disgraced a corner shop news agent back in the day. And I knew the world changed. But I didn't think it changed that much. On my way out of the station, someone thrust a free copy of the enemy at me. Sick transit, etc. etc. Just keep on mentioning the cow gum tipex and spray mount. Evil stuff. <laughs> Invocative to those of us who say. Because we were talking about all that, weren't we? In the, in the, the, I, I think in the podcast about Tony Fletcher, wasn't it? You know. Oh right, yes, yeah, we yeah. were. Yeah, where were. he was talking about copies of jamming that were all stapled together, his, his fanzine stapled together on his bedroom floor. Fantastic. Uh, it's lovely to hear from you, Gareth. That's and, a great letter. Uh, very, very well evoked that, it was, that era. Uh, what else have we got in terms of uh, yeah, Jeffrey? We were Jeffrey is asking. I think we previously dilated on the subject of uh, of the distinction between progressive and prog rock. Which, if I could just recap, I think progressive was a term applied in the late sixties, early seventies and was more or less interchangeable with the term underground as a way of describing the new form of rock. And then prog rock was a later term, late 70s, early 80s, when by which stage it was quite clear, you know, that prog rock was uh, musicians wearing uh, wearing uh, hey. T-shirts with bell sleeves, you know, and yeah. doing, playing twin neck guitars and and pieces of work that had many sections. He was also progressive was progressive was a kind of musical exploration, wasn't it? So soft machine were a progressive band because they were kind of working out new new uh, adventures in jazz and cream with blues and Pink Floyd with kind of psychedelic pop. And prog was more about sort of tech. Technical, technical, technical noodling. Do you think? Yes. Prowess, showboating, musical showboating. Was it? I, you know, I was classically trained. That kind of thing. Anyway, Jeffrey wants to know: Is there a dif- difference between heavy rock and heavy metal? That's good. Ah, it is good. That's good. They, I mean, heavy rock. I don't know. You, you, you would have said, "Well, Led Zeppelin." I, Led Zeppelin, heavy metal. I always say, I always think the yeah, I thought heavy rock was kind of budgy and brewer's droop and that kind of lump and boogie. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, heavy metal is something different. It's Black Sabbath, it's riffs, and it's it's uh, it's more it's industrial. Fantasy. It's it's more male. It's I I'm going to venture a further point. I don't think heavy metal's sexy. Oh right, okay. I don't think it is. I think that's part of his appeal. It's <laughs> not. You know what I mean. It's it's kind of it's, so it's just, okay. That's very interesting. So D- David Coverdale would he ever have been to heavy metal? No, uh, well, band. Oh yeah, it's probably more heavy rock actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the further you go towards the metal end of it, the less sexy it is. That's yeah, all. 
that's all. I I I don't I don't have a I don't have a definitive answer to your question, Jeffrey. Uh, Mark Lawrenson, uh, Mark Lawrence, what I'm talking about, Mark Lawrenson, TV football pundit. Uh, he says the doors seem only grudgingly included in the '60s pantheon of true rock, rock legends. Morrison was hardly the only bad boy amongst them, but I think the Val Kilmer movie killed the love and affection. Do we agree? Yes. Yeah, I agree. I think we do. It's funny because I love the doors. It's, it's, it's interesting. I love. It's the opposite for me. You can't with, love with, the doors. You can't. I, I, I really. I don't, don't love them, but I like the music enormously. But I, I. The problem is Jim Morrison. Yes. The more you discover about Jim Morrison, the more obnoxious, pretentious, narcissistic, and unpleasant he appeared to be. And that's become a complete obstacle now. I can't divorce who I think he is and the stuff I found out. He used to pretend that his father didn't exist, didn't, didn't he? That he didn't have any parents. Because his father was actually the um, an naval admiral. officer. No, that's right, an, admiral. an admiral. Admiral running the, I think, an aircraft carrier that was actually sending planes in to bomb Vietnam. So he kept very quiet about this. He was the most deviant, uh, deviant horrible, uh, grotesque character. And uh, I think it's very hard to like the group. I, I feel the opposite way about the Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters music, I don't really, you know, it's not really for me. I can understand why they're so good. But Dave Grohl is so lovable, yeah. so adorable. And I will always make a point of listening to or watching anything that he's on. He was on uh, Graham Norton the other night. It's just so winning and companionable and charming. And uh, that kind of affects your view of it, you know. Definitely. I, I, kind of feel the, the, I love the Foo Fighters, kind of the concept of them because of him. And I kind of, you know, I used to love the Doors when I was a kid, but I just, I just find him a total obstacle there. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So there it is. The answer to that surely is no, the Doors. I've just noticed Alex has joined us. Hi guys. Hello, Alex. How are you? <laughs> I'm away. I'm from the corner. He's keeping Observing very quiet in the corner. Yeah. Alex is on a sea cruise, people. You notice. Know speak when I'm spoken to. Yeah, yeah. How's things on your cruise, Alex? Oh, very well, yeah. Uh, we're in Barcelona today. It's cloudy. That's not so good. But um, right. the shows are going well. They're well attended. The band's good. Um, I'm having two dinners a night. Um yeah, I'm pretty happy. It's not a bad life, is it? It's not a I bad thought, life at all. I thought of a new thing that your Beatles group ought to do in oh, your yes, downtime. And I'll okay. tell you what, I had I had an epiphany on Friday afternoon because I've heard bits of this before, but I never before sat down in my life. I never sat down and listened to the whole of the Beatles' Isha demo as they are so called. They're fantastic, aren't they? From 1968. Is that right? I like it, isn't it? Yeah. They're basically the Beatles, you know, Sergeant Pepper 67, Brian Epstein dies. They make Magical Mystery Tour, comes out at Christmas, <laughs> not very well received. They go off in February, is it, Mark? February to Rishikesh. To yeah, Rishikesh yeah. in India to the Maharishi's retreat where they clearly, they take a few guitars with them and clearly spend an awful lot of time writing songs, uh, which were to make up the White Album. Well, they, they, they claim to write between 30 and 48 songs. They couldn't remember how many, which is incredible, isn't it? It's the whole of the White Album, 75% of it. And anyway, when they come back, which must be kind of, I don't know, spring 1968, they repair to John Lennon's place in Isha, is it? George, uh, George's place. George's yeah. place in yeah. Isha. 
and they just they just sit around with acoustic guitars. And I don't know if Ringo's there, is he? But there's somebody occasionally providing percussion in the background. And they just play all those songs that turned up on the White Album. And the Isha demos, which were issued, I've got it because I've got a kind of deluxe edition of the of the White Album reissue from uh, you know from a few years ago. One of the CDs is the Isha demos, where you got all those demos, but in the order that the eventual songs were on the album. And it's just astonishing. They're just sitting in a room playing this stuff, which they've only just recently written, and it's still making... They're, they're still amusing each other. They're delighting each other. They're making, it's really making faithful laugh. It's the, really the, faithful. Yeah, to the, the versions they actually produce are like back in the USSR and all, are incredibly like what they do. Yes. Demos. They're just kind of just worked up, aren't they? More elaborate, but I mean, it's the same basic structure. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Sure. And the thing that struck me, Alex, was this is this would have been the greatest MTV unplugged anybody had ever done Ooh, by a street. I mean, by an absolute country mile. You cannot believe how good they are, how good their harmonies are. Yeah, how, just the interplay between them. It's absolutely astonishing. And of course, they were just doing it for a demo. You know, they they weren't didn't think anybody was going to hear it but themselves, which probably made it better. It's amazing. So that's what I think you should do, Alex, with your Beatles. This Beatles unplugged set. Beatles oh. unplugged set. Yeah, it's an it's, idea. It's a tambourine. It, it's three stools. It's it, acoustics. It, it is absolutely. And it's a busking set. It's a folk club set. It's a hoot yeah. nanny set. You go and listen to it. It sounds like these references may not mean much to you, young lad, young felony <laughs> lad. But it sounds like a cross between Bob Dylan and the band's basement tapes and the Beach Boys party. It's so got good. that yeah. feeling about it. It's just amazing. And I think that's, that's a, what you should do. That's a great idea. <laughs> to, 
Okay. Of all the fortune that you make, <laughs> it's amazing that they wrote all those songs in Rishikesh because they've gone out there to meditate, haven't they? They've gone out there to meet the Maharishi. My theory is that they all went off him quite quickly and just thought, actually, do you know what? It, it, it's February. We're in India. It's it's a it's a very sunny holiday. Let's just get the guitars out and write some songs because so, they so wrote the you know, Bungalow Bill and. And Oh Blood D and Rocky Raccoon and all these very non-spiritual songs. Why don't we do it in the road? And the yeah. idea that all this meditation was going on, that's what they were up to. They're right? bunking up. They were. This is, the other thing about it is that it's the nearest thing that the Beatles came in their career to going on a conference. Yeah, they yeah. went on a conference. They went to a country house, yeah. admittedly in India, and uh, and they, you know, they didn't have anything to do every every day apart from just go for walks and play guitars. It's fantastic. Anyway, that's what we should do. So, have we got any new Patreon supporters, Alex? Yeah, we do. Uh, got quite a few actually. Um, Good. They are Bridget Wyatt. Hello, Bridget. Hello, Bridget. Welcome aboard. Uh, David Bruce. Hello, David. Charles Crabtree. Hello, Charles. Has anybody told you where your cabin is? Let's pretend <laughs> that people are going on a cruise. What are they? What, how do they welcome people when they're coming on board for a cruise, Alex? You know all about this. I, I, I don't, actually, because I sort of go in the, the other entrance. You're in the um, trace. Is yeah. there a tradesman's entrance? So the staff, staff entrance, just yeah. past the deck tennis. Just below the waterline. Yeah. The coits. Actually, no, <laughs> no, I tell a lie, because we're, we're actually uh, uh, technically passengers on this cruise. I think something right. to do with COVID. Um, so we did go in the, the proper entrance, and uh, we're welcomed. I was called Sir, and I was no told right. to enjoy my cruise. I neglected the, to mention I was actually doing 12 cruises in a row. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, everybody calls you sir and it's very pleasant and asks you to wash your hands. Okay. Oh. All right. Yeah. Carry on. We're going to, uh, more? yes. Uh, I've mentioned Charles Crabtree, haven't I? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, Thomas Gray. Thomas Gray. Welcome, welcome, sir. Please wash does, your hands. Does Thomas Gray get two dinners as well? <laughs> he can get two dinners. <laughs> Deck 15. Deck 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rena. Rena. Hello, Rena. That sounds like a Beatles song. It does. Diane Sorry, I missed that one. Diane. Diane Aston. Hello, Diane. Uh, Grace M hyphen T. Grace M hyphen T. Wow. God. Well, welcome. Well, indeed. Uh, We also have Paul Wood and Peter Ryan, who are both annual patrons. Annual subscribers get a 15% discount, don't forget. Right. Okay. Okay. And finally, last but certainly not least, Tom Carl. Who is an access all areas patron? Oh well, oh, we're getting a birthday present. Okay, and if you want, you know, if you want to know about any more of that stuff, uh, if you go patreon.com, word in your ear, that's where you find out about things, isn't it, Alex? Indeed, it is. Uh, this is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. I was, uh, I, I, I put on on Twitter. An old enemy, um, hundred greatest records of all time. Oh, uh, I saw that, yeah. Thingy, uh, which uh, we always do whenever these things, um, whenever these things cross our desks. And uh, it, it, yeah, somebody else, so posted, interesting. Somebody else posted another one, and and somebody else asked, asked a question, which I felt. We ought to respond to Mark because we we can you know we're, in, we're uh, we have sufficient experience to be able okay. to 
respond to this question. I can't remember who put it, but the question was, why do or why did, back in the day, magazines and newspapers run these kind of things? Were they popular? Oh, boy, they were popular. Oh, God, they were popular. Oh, they were about the most popular thing you can, you can do at a music magazine, is, is to say, here's the 100 greatest Here's the best records, records ever, because nobody, obviously, by definition, will agree with you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just, I mean, it's funny how it just, it rankles, it niggles. I read that 1976 thing that you reposted, and it annoyed me so much, as they are intended to do. <laughs> You know, because this is 1976, it's the enemy. And I thought it was immensely snobbish, actually, because they didn't, you know, there was virtually no no candidates for the kind of recent rock. There was, I don't think David Bowie was in there. I don't think T-Rex was in there. I don't think there was Roxy read, or Mott the Hoople or Fruit really. or Led Zeppelin. I don't think any of that. It was mostly soul. So I think it was a little bit of... Uh, you know, slight. I mean, fabulous. You know, I say a little prayer. You know, uh, you know, grapevine tracks of my tears. Midnight Hour, Dock of the Bay. But they've chosen to ignore tons of the kind of white rock of the time. And <laughs> I just wondered if that was rock critics just saying, you know, let's just, uh, you know, let's, let's go back to um, to a time when uh, you know music was uh, infinitely more substantial than than Led Zeppelin or whatever. I don't know. Was it slightly but, snobbish? But no, this stuff it it just always works. And also, it's dead easy to do. To do, yeah, yeah. you know, you just you just come up with a list and put it in there. People absolutely adore it. And here we are, as you say yourself, still getting annoyed about this. No, it's immensely annoyed. <laughs> Forty-five years. And you later. knew that two years later would be completely different. It was all yeah. going to be rock critics going. It's the Clash. It's the Pistols. It's television. It's Iggy Pop. You know, fair enough. But you know, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at a very badly re- reproduced picture right now on my screen of I think a, a one from 1974 from the NMA. Is somebody's oh, I saw that. I could hardly read it actually, but yeah, it's there. Okay, it? number one, Sergeant Pepper. Number two, Blonde on Blonde. Number three, uh, Pet Sounds. Number four, Revolver. Number five, Highway 61. And now six and seven are Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix, followed by Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. I'm sorry. I don't, I, Electric Ladyland is not, can, surely, isn't it? it, it no, not be. very good. But it's, it's just, it's just. But it, yeah. I noticed well, some some ringers in there that just would, you know. Ha, ha, I think Stand Up by Jethro Tull is in the top twenty or something. I think that's. A, I mean, it's a good record, but I mean, the idea that it's in the top hundred is Low Spark of High Heel Boys by Traffic. Great is record. that there? Yeah, I think that's in there. My yeah. God, very interesting. But that just how long do those survive? But I was amazed by how many of those. Things were, you know, the, the the Beatles, Stones, Dylan stuff are still in top hundreds now, actually, aren't they? I mean, a large percentage of that is still around, you know. Oh, definitely, definitely. I'm just looking at, uh, I'm just looking at further. Um, sorry, you're going to have to edit this, Alex. Sorry. Um, I'm trying to find other questions. Um, Oh, I can't find any. Mark, you were... Beatles at Woodstock, I'm trying to think. Well, I'm trying to look through the notes here. Somebody talked about the year 1967, how great it was. Um, uh, what new bands would you have on Whistle Test? God, I wouldn't not be able to answer that. Uh, did your relationship with bands change after you became a journalist? Um 
You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to. Cut overrated, underrated. I don't know really. What else was there? Um, oh yeah. Oh, there's one about. I've got, got a couple of... here. Go on. Yeah, we'll start recording it while we're recording. Oh yeah, go on. Do yours. Do yours. Philip Laws. This is a good question, and I don't have an answer. It's the second half of the seventies, and established bands have to get with the times. Apart from Pink Floyd's "Another Brick in the Wall" and the Stones' "Miss You." Did any other rock acts successfully or even acceptably embrace the disco beat? That's a good question. Ooh, you see, another brick in the wall was deliberately, is Bob Ezrin was yeah. producing that record. Yeah. And they went to a disco and to note what people were dancing to. And so another brick in the wall is, is the, the requisite number of beats per minute to be a dance tune. And it was a dance tune. People danced to it. This, this singularly depressing song about, about children being brainwashed. And so yes. Was it kind of, everybody danced to it. That's why it was a huge number one hit for months. And quite right. Miss You by the Rolling Stones is, you know. Yeah, that's it, disco. That, yeah. yeah, that was a genuine kind of It's got disco, that galloping yeah. octave yeah. bass line. Yeah, it? yeah. I, I don't know. Think, I mean, you can't, can't include Blondie else. in this because Blondie were kind of, although they were a kind of rock band and a pop band, but they, and they then produced some fantastic disco records. That was at the time of disco, and they were kind of at the forefront of, yeah, of uh, of, 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 of of promoting and developing disco, really, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, so uh, it's a very good question. Jamie Bowman also interestingly sends a picture of a load of CDs he just bought in a charity shop. And they've got things like The Who, Odds and Sods, and uh, it's got Led Zeppelin presents. And he got all these for £1.50. He's pointing out. What, for the whole you, lot? I don't I, whether you Whether the whole lot or individually, I would have thought he got a bargain. You know what I mean? If you get £1, it's paid £1.50 for a copy of The Who's Odds and Sods or Led Zeppelin's presents. I thought I would that's have a thought good that's deal. A, a really good deal. It is. And the, you know, I still insist. I've, I've said it till I'm blue in the mouth. Yeah. The CD will come back. Yeah. It just will. And this stuff is being passed over right now, just in the same way that vinyl was passed over 20 years, 20 years earlier. Yeah. Or, or, or longer ago than that, I suppose. And it'll, there'll be some kind of revival of it, I guarantee. <laughs> So um, we should also note the passing of Alan Lancaster, bass player of the status quo, um, who uh, was one of the founding members from you know back in the nineties, back in the sixties, through Pictures and Matchstick Man and all that, and then the kind of reinvention of a as a boogeyman in the seventies, and then he. He departed these shores. Went to live in Australia, didn't he? Went to live in all married. In which is where he was living, I think, at the time of Live Aid. They brought him back for Live Aid. And then I think went off and started making status quo records without him, without telling him that he wasn't involved. And that was it, really. <laughs> they thought he was far enough away. I always thought the status quo, I always thought the spinal tap story was based slightly on status quo, don't you think? Because if you remember that, that these guys were they, they were the Scorpions, then they were the Spectres. Yeah. Then they were traffic. Then they were traffic jam. <laughs> then they were the status quo. Then they were status quo, and they had pictures of Max Stalkman, and constantly trying to kind of hitch their wagon to the, the prevailing trade winds. 
Then they had a single up that called Black Veils of Melancholy, I think. They which did. did absolutely nothing. And then suddenly they just went for the Carnaby Street finery in the back and bouffons, you know, and it was uh, and it was boogie. And you know, Spinal Tap was the originals, wasn't it? The new originals, Thamesman. Thamesman had a song called "Listen to the Flower People," <laughs> and then uh, and then made their uh, they suddenly saw the which way the wind was blowing and went for Spinal Tap. Amazing. So they just they were constantly just trying to get it right and just missing the boat, and it just all came into focus. Massive change. You saw well, it a few I, times, didn't you? I saw the quo at the uh, that what I like to think was the height in the seventies. Yeah, saw so him certainly a couple of times um, uh, at Wembley and at Hammersmith. Yeah, and they were one of the greatest bands I've ever seen in my life. Fantastic. They had, Why was that? They had quite. See, a lot of people wouldn't expect worked, to hear Dave Hepworth saying that. <laughs> I'm sorry, they worked a very narrow scene, admittedly, but what they did, they did unbelievably well. Yeah. And anybody who says that status quo were kind of boogie dunderheads, go and try and make that noise yourself. Go on, have a go. Well, because I've heard a million people try, and none of them can do it because they just swung status quo at their best in a way that no bugger else does. Yeah, you know, and. um, and they couldn't make that noise again quite without Alan Lancaster, could they? Because didn't they? They reformed, didn't they? In 2014 well, the, or I mean, the, that was the great. I, I, I always think the story of uh, Status Quo is Francis Rossi is just a, a kind of odd, restless soul for some reason. He's always, I think he's a stirrer. <laughs> I think yeah. He, I think he sends people away, you know. And he fell out with Alan Lancaster. He fell out with John Coghlan, the drummer, who claimed that they wanted to replace it with the drum machine, which I can't believe they did at all. And uh, and and they got in musicians who were probably better, but they no longer sounded like status quo. That's my point. Yeah, it didn't sound like status quo again until 2012 when they reformed for that. Alan G. Parker film, Hello Quo, or whatever it's called. Great film. Where they, the where two they just, great documentaries about them. And they they just can they, they appear in a, in a Shepperton, I think it is, somewhere like that. And they're all blokes in their 60s, looking slightly suspicious of each other. And there are still clearly grudges going on oh. in this group. And Alan Lancaster is 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 not is quite infirm. But they get up and they play in my chair, and it's a yeah, lovely old blue tune, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's just magical because you think that band went away in the mid '80s, and here it is back. Yeah, and it's only back because those four guys are back. Yes. together. You can't do it any other way. And um, I think they're a remarkable group, status quo, at their best. Uh, I don't. I don't particularly care for the psychedelic stuff. I don't care for the later stuff, but the '70s stuff, you know, all that stuff. Pile driver. And as you were saying, <laughs> you spent a lot of time. Lay down. That's right. You said you spent a lot of time just watching the audience, and you see them at Wembley or something. You see how an amazing sight oh, it was. No, just as massive people all identically dressed, all dressed doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They weren't even looking at the stage most of the time. Yeah, you know, they, yeah. were, they were just heads down, swaying from side yeah. to side because it was just a wonderful, great communal 
feeling. They're, they're, they're remarkable. So and we should mention them. we should mention Barry Ryan. We should. Barry Ryan made some made two or three great records, and uh, and his mum Marion Ryan. The Marilyn Monroe of popular song. I didn't know that. I was just looking no, at No, she was she was well known. She was always on the telly when I was a kid. Um yeah, yeah. she was on the spot the tune, wasn't she? Various kind of uh, early 60s programs or whatever. She was she was glamorous as as yeah. as British kind of uh, female musical stars went at the time. You know, yeah. she wasn't Ruby Murray. She was there's something a little bit brassy about her. And um and anyway, she, you know, she she married and had had, had twins, and uh, and then as they grew, they became a showbiz story because they were they were cute young guys in the sixties. You know, they kind of looked like junior Beatles, <clears throat> and uh, and then they appeared as Paul and Barry Ryan, and they had a hit or two. And the Barry, yeah, the Barry Ryan, the Barry Ryan at the time of Eloise, which was written by Paul, actually, wasn't it? He? he did mm. a solo single, and he just sums up. The 60s so perfectly, I think. He's got that, um, you know, the, the kind of billowing sleeves, the, the kind of psych, just before psychedelia, psychedelia is about to tip into kind of the hippie era. And he captured, he looks like a kind of Austin Powers character. And he went on yes. to be a, a photographer and working for Zoom magazine things. Like, I can see him now as being an absolute archetype, like kind of Dave, David Hemmings in Blow Up, you know. Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. more 60s, that kind of Paul McCartney, slightly back-combed haircut and just... Just a, a fantastic, fantastic. But Eloise is is a great, great record, you know that uh, that he did and that Paul Ryan wrote and produced. I think. And the and, damned had it. The like damned did I it. I know. Many, many. There you later. go. <laughs> it's still a fantastic, yeah, it fantastic, is. fantastic it is. record. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink, and it's like being in the pub. So, Mark, you went to a gig. I went to a gig last, last night and double nostalgia because it was the nostalgia of hearing Scritti Politti, who yeah. it was, playing their record from 1985, Nostalgic Enough for Itself, but also the nostalgia of actually being at a gig. I mean, you went to see Spurs the other day, so you've been in a crowd. Not That's me. This, this is, I know, I've not been in a crowd for a long time. It's so extraordinary to be among 1,700 people. Drinking and dancing and heckling and whooping and you know all those things again, extraordinary. You have to show a, a, a vax certificate to get in, no masks. Um, you know, otherwise everything back to normal. And great to see Scrittability too, because he had this long period of not playing, he got stage fright, didn't he? Panic attacks, etc. So he's been slowly coaxed back into into live performance, mostly by. Our old what? podcast pal, Rodri Marston. Rodri Marston is the keyboard player. And I talked to him afterwards about you know how he did it. This is really interesting because, you know, there are certain bands where you can just get two guitars, bass and drums and go out and play the songs again. But Scritti Politti is entirely about um, the, the texture of those keyboard sounds and synthesizer sounds. It's about the electronic percussion. It's about those details. Do you know what I mean? Those little mm -hmm. kind of... It, 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 he had to go back and reconstruct those entire records by listening to them in great detail and working out how you could reproduce that sound and then building a sound bed for each song, which had the percussion in, some of the percussion and all the bass uh, lines, and then the rest of the group, you know, the two guitars and, and him playing keyboards and the drummer kind of fill in over the top. And I just thought, what an unbelievably complicated thing. 17 songs that you've got to have ready to hit button, and that's the basic sound bed that you're adding to. And uh, it sounded perfect. It sounded absolutely brilliant. But we, Green's we, voice still we touched, we touched upon this, I think, with Rodri 
when he's in the podcast. Yeah. Rodri is a wonderful musician. He's incredible, um, isn't he? But but also he regards himself as being very fortunate to be kind of in the service of Green, doesn't he? He he regards himself as, you know, I, my, my mission is to to bring Green to the world. Well, it's a by perfect, facilitating all, all that. Yeah, it's a perfect timing. relationship because he's of the age as most of the people in the audience were. You know, Roger's exactly fifty on his fiftieth birthday a couple of days ago. So those are the kind of people who were who were who were teenagers when those records came out and 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 uh, and. Uh, really connected with them. So he's a huge Scritti Politi fan. So yeah. he's just never gone over how lucky he is, as you say, to be working with Green and trying to get these things back out into the public. And Green is no, you know, is immensely grateful that I'm without sure. Rodri, he would never have done do this. Rodri's the guy who Rodri's Rodri's box of tricks, his keyboards, effectively is Scritti Politi with Green adding a vocal and a guitar, do you know what I mean? And the rest of them chipping in. But all of that has been programmed by Rodri. And he's made it possible. They're about to go out and play some support slots on the um, OMG tour in November. And I think that's amazing. They've gone from absolutely nothing. I mean, I, 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 I remember going to Rodri's 40th birthday party 10 years ago. And Green very shyly got up and played a couple of little acoustic tracks on, on stage in a pub with him. And that was the first time anyone had seen him on stage for, for ages. And now there he is, do you know what I mean? Doing his own tour and about to go out and play these vast 15,000-seater arenas. Um, supporting OMD, so it's it's all it's all just lifting off, and it couldn't be more wonderful. It's fantastic. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Hey.